Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone. We certainly are glad that you're here with us, and we're also especially delighted to have scientist, academic, and author Dr. Malcolm Potts. You know, I got this book from the publisher, oh, probably about six months or so, and uh, read uh, several chapters and came in, like I am off, often do on a Monday, and give it to Jess and say, go figure out how to get this author. And so congratulations to our program staff, and special thanks to the publisher as well for making this evening possible. <clears throat> also want to thank our friend Larry Ellums with the Dallas Institute of, for, for, of Humanities and Culture, uh, who is our partner for uh, uh, tonight's program. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I want to try and move quickly because I think the most important part of the evening may be your questions and insight uh, afterwards. I was a small boy in the Second World War. I can remember the soldiers coming back from Dunkirk looking for uh, lodgings for the night. I can remember the sky filled with airplanes and gliders on, on D-Day. My brother was a professional soldier who fought in Korea. The most moving um, time of my life, the most harrowing, was after the um, War of Liberation in Bangladesh, when I led a team of doctors who tried to help the many, many women who had been terribly uh, raped. But I've also been in post-conflict situations in Liberia and Angola, and I think, like most people in this room, ask the very basic question, why do human beings spend so much time killing each other? It is such a universal behavior, we omit to uh, observe that it's a very, very rare behavior. Some animals, you know, like, like your Texan bulls, will fight each other, they may gore each other, but it's not a deliberate, systematic effort by a group of individuals to go and kill other individuals. That behavior, which we call team aggression, is very unusual. It occurs in human beings. It occurs in one species of chimpanzee, the one that Jane Goodall studies, and the one that my wife who's in the audience and I have been lucky enough to observe in the wild and probably in hyenas and wolves. There are 5,000 species of animals, and none of the other ones do these terrible things to each other. I think that we can learn a lot by looking at other animals. I'm a physician. If I want to know about diabetes, I'll look at dogs or rats or something else, because they have the same uh, physiology. And I think we have some common behaviors. And I want to suggest to you that we have this common team behavior with chimpanzees. We had the same ancestor about seven million years ago. Chimps are territorial animals. The males define the territory. And every so often, a group of males in the prime of life go out of their own territory. When you watch the males, they make a huge noise. They hit the tree trunks. They shout and scream. They go very quietly in a stealthy way. They find an individual of another troop and they attack it in the most vicious way possible. They tear off strips of flesh with their canine teeth, they twist limbs out of their sockets, and the individual dies in about 24, 48 hours. One third of chimpanzees are killed by other chimpanzees. In our book, we try to look 
at the history from anthropology and archaeology and written history. If you go to the highlands of New Guinea, which is really a Stone Age culture, we didn't even know that people lived there till the 1920s, one third of adults are killed by other people in the highlands of New, New Guinea. One half of all the world's languages are in New Guinea. Languages define groups and groups uh, kill outgroups. In North uh, Dakota, uh, archaeologists found a site where there were 430 skeletons that had been massacred in about 1320, long before the Europeans came. There was a, a deficiency of young female skeletons. So whoever did this, whatever warriors did this, probably took the women off to, to, to rape them. So I think there's a, a seamless record of human team aggression and killing of other human beings. The Yanomano are a group of um, people who live in Venezuela and Brazil in the, in the Amazonian jungle. Four out of ten adult Yanomano have been involved in killing another human being. This is an extraordinarily costly behavior. Now the good news is we don't have to do this and although it may surprise you and it certainly surprised me when I was working on this book, the world is much more peaceful now than it's ever been. There's really uh, possibly Russia during the, the worst days of World War II had perhaps 20% of, of the population killed. In the US Civil War, 2% of Americans were killed. In World War II, 1 in 300. In 9-11, 1 in 100,000 American citizens uh, died. So we're not doing it perfectly, but we are getting uh, better. In order to kill other human beings, you need to have a small troop of individuals that are willing to take a lot of risks themselves. When I was writing this book, I would say to Martha, you know, this is what human beings do. And she said, no, it isn't. It's what men do. And I think that's very true. And I think that's a key to understanding some part about human aggression and also thinking of ways in which we could make it less uh, common and less uh, violent. But Young men, particularly in the sort of 15 to 30-year-old age group, and our testosterone levels are highest when we're most willing to take risks, the age of most warriors, the age of most of the American casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan at the present moment, those, that, that group can develop intense loyalty for each other. There was a man called Glenn Gray who got his PhD from Princeton in philosophy and his draft papers in World War II on the same day. And he wrote a book called The Warriors, and he describes very vividly this enormous non-sexual love that uh, individual warriors have for each other. We band of brothers. So um, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. He who day to day sheds his blood with me shall my brother be. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen now abed in England shall think themselves a curse they were not here. That's how Shakespeare makes Henry V speak before the Battle of Agincourt, and he captures a lot of that loyalty and courage. Actually, King Henry V of the Battle of Agincourt had all the prisoners beheaded. Wars were originally genocidal. If you look at the, in Deuteronomy, in the, in the Old Testament, it says, of these people which the Lord your God gives you, as an inheritance, you should let nothing that breathes remain alive. Let nothing that breathes remain alive. Wars were, were genocidal. You shall destroy the Hittites and the Amorites and the Jezebelites. So our violent history goes back a long way, and I think these wars are fought, maybe fought by millions of people, but they're broken down into little bands. The crew of a submarine 
the platoon that's in the same uh, trench. I suggest that in order to kill our own species, which is a curious thing to do, because we're a very social, loving species in many ways, we have to have some mechanism in our brain which enables us to dehumanize other people, or de-chimpanzeeize them, I suppose, if you're a chimpanzee. And I think when we look at it, we do that terribly uh, easily, unfortunately. You know, there was a famous experiment in Stanford University where they randomly allotted students, nice university students, to be prisoners and guards. They made a facsimile prison in the psychology department. Within two or three days, the people that were allotted to be the guards were beating up on the people allotted to be the prisoners. And it's very interesting, it was the girlfriend of Professor Philip Zimbardo who had this experiment, who said, this has got out of hand, you've got to stop it, it's unethical. So I think we all have these behaviours within them, but we don't have to express them. The band who attacked us on 9-11, 19 young men in that age group, two of them were brothers, uh, were closely allied people, you know, our terrorists are somebody else's freedom fighters. They thought that they were doing a noble, brave thing. You know, difficult to get in an aeroplane and fly it at high speed into, a, into another building. The 9-11 Commission had this to say. It said, high birth rates and declining rates of infant mortality have produced a common problem, a large, steadily increasing population of young men without any reasonable expectation of suitable or steady employment a sure prescription for social turbulence. I think that is very uh, true. I went to University College London. In the middle of the 19th century, there was, a, there was a doctor called William Bladen, and he became very famous in late Victorian England because he'd been in Kabul with the British Army in 1842. And there was a treat from Kabul of about 4,000 people. He was the only one, Dr. Bladen, who survived. There were four million Afghans at that time, or less than four million, and they defeated the British Army, which was a fairly powerful army at that time, as I think uh, Ambassador Singh would recognize. When the Russians invaded Afghanistan, there were 16 million people, and they defeated the Russians. There were 30 million people now in Afghanistan, and there'll probably be 50 million in 1850, in, in 1950. We're not going to defeat these bands of brothers who hate us for a variety of reasons. We're not going to defeat these angry young men who don't have employment opportunities, who form uh, Al-Qaeda. They're very, very small groups. We have to look upstream and try and create a world where they don't want to hate us, where they do have an opportunity for an honourable uh, life, where they can um, get educated and they can become uh, slightly uh, richer. I think that um, if we go back to the chimpanzees, this male aggression never benefited the females. It doesn't create any more trees in the forest to go and kill your enemies and have a bigger territory. It benefits the males because there's a bigger territory, there can be more females, they leave more of their genes in the next generation. You know, evolution is not about what is right, or just, or nice, it's about what works. And mutations are not a... Um, a, a uh, uh, because they were, they were there for something, an animal has a mutation in its design of its body, a giraffe has a longer neck, or in its behavior, and that behavior benefits that individual, it's adaptive. And tragically, in chimpanzees and the early history of our ancestors, aggressive males left more progeny in the next generation. In Asia, 
one in 12 men have the same Y chromosome. That is, uh, we've got uh, our chromosomes come in pairs, and the X chromosomes are the female chromosome, and the Y chromosome is the male chromosome. If you have the same Y chromosome, you had the same ancestor. Across the world, one in 200 people, about 16 million people, have the same Y chromosome. The most plausible explanation of that is they are all descendants of Genghis Khan. He is known that whenever he captured a city, he allotted the booty in a pretty democratic way to his warriors, and he took the most beautiful women, and his children did that for several generations. In a way, in a point of view of Darwinian evolution, Genghis Khan was the most successful human being that ever lived. I don't think he's our role model, and I don't think we all have to behave like, like Genghis Khan. In fact, I would suggest that the way to make the world a more peaceful place is to create a world where women have as much autonomy as possible, where women can play the biggest possible role in civil society. I'm not just thinking of a female prime minister, that's welcome, but I'm thinking of more female members of Congress, more female members of Parliament, more female members of any civic body and society. And I also think, going back to the 9-11 Commission, that we need to do something to slow rapid population growth in countries like Pakistan, like Afghanistan, um, like Yemen, like northern Nigeria, where I, where I work a lot. Because that really is creating societies where you cannot get ahead with education, you cannot get ahead with, with, with health care. Um, in Niger, which is on the border of the Sahel, one in 2,000 women complete secondary education. It is the most rapidly growing population in the world, and population growth is more rapid than economic growth. It's got nowhere to go but down. So I've always been very interested in family planning and thinking about this book. It sort of circled back, I think, in a very compelling way for myself to um, offer women family planning, which, as you kindly said, Larry, is something I've been doing all my, wife, all my life, and my wife's also been very much involved in. At the present time, there are 215 million women on this planet who don't want another child immediately or never. They're well measured in developing countries in, in social surveys, and they're not using modern family planning, not because they don't want to, but because they can't get it, or because there are many unnecessary barriers to getting family planning. If you go to a clinic in Tanzania and uh, you have five children, they say you can't take the pill. There's no scientific reason for that. If you go to try to get the pill in, in Madagascar and you don't have one child, they say you can't take it. There's an enormous over-medicalization, a great deal of misinformation. We did studies all around the world, and there's huge numbers of women who think taking the pill is more dangerous than having a baby. In a country like Nigeria, or in the northern states of India, that's 1,000 times wrong, and yet um, it's something that, that happens. I first went to Kabul when there were 12 million people in about 1970, and I visited what was, there was, the old king was on the throne, and the people, the Americans, I'm now an American citizen, they were trying to do family planning. The doctor there was trying to insert what I felt was a very bad, untested intrauterine device. And he was making the Afghan doctors who inserted these devices fill in eight pages of documents about did these women's grandmothers have diabetes and things. It really made me, I was just a young, rebellious doctor, but it made me extremely cross. First of all, it was totally culturally inappropriate. Men can't examine women in, in 
Afghanistan. We have to recognize that. If you don't have a warmer doctor, you're not going to get anywhere. And there aren't many doctors. So we have to look at those things that you can do where you empower the community to help itself. And it's absolutely irrelevant to keep records in a, in a country where there aren't birth or death records. What they should have done is what we've done in other countries like, like Thailand, like, like Sri Lanka, like Ethiopia, which is to empower the local community to help itself. We're teaching people in Ethiopia to give the injectable contraceptive, and they're village volunteers. We have two priests that give this. They're very proud to do this. When you do that, family size always uh, falls. So let me end by giving a, a couple of examples. In case you think I'm just a liberal Berkeley professor creating an image of a dream world, let me give you a couple of reasons why I think what I'm saying has some uh, validity. The Islamic Republic of Iran held a census uh, after their very, very costly war with Iraq. And the economists and the public health people went to Ayatollah Khomeini and said, we are an oil-rich country, but if our population, they're having an average of about six children, goes on growing at this rate, we won't be able to employ the people, we won't be able to educate them. We have to lower family size. And Khomeini, who certainly is a good theologian and who knows the Holy Koran by heart, said, yes, the Holy Koran and the sayings of the Prophet, the Hadith, really the only holy books that support family planning. They talk about Azul, male uh, cordis interruptus. So he said, yes, you can do family planning. So the Iranians built the only uh, pill factory in that part of the world. They built the only condom factory in a Muslim country. They offered male and female uh, voluntary sterilization. And family size came down from about five to under three more rapidly than it had done in China with the one-child policy. Absolutely astonishing. And now Iranians have two children. Now there are more Iranian women in Tehran University than there are men. And I think many of us in this room might think Iran does not have a very sensible precedent at the present moment and not be comfortable with their nuclear policy. But I am very convinced that in a generation's time, when you have a two-child family, when people can get educated, when young men can get employed, then you'll have a much more stable uh, society. My other example comes from the Palestinian Liberation Organization. I've only worked in the Gaza Strip once. When I was there, everybody had a job. There were 16 people who didn't have jobs. It has a very, very broad-based population pyramid. And it's full of very, very angry young men. And I would be angry if I was a Palestinian young man. If I couldn't get a job, it's a sexually conservative society. I'm not having sex, I'm a normal human being. Some of you in this room may remember the 1972 Olympics when the Black September movement um, killed a lot of Israeli athletes. What is less well known is after that um, event, Yasser Arafat was thought uh, he would get an observer station status at the United Nations. And uh, he was very worried that the Black September, who he didn't really control, again, these were like a group of chimpanzees. They were a group of very strongly motivated, passionate young men who hated the outside group and were going to go and do more of these things. And they were worried that if there was another episode like that, then the PLO would get such a bad political image that they would never be able to move forward politically. One very savvy, older member of the PLO said, look, I've got a great idea. He said, let's find, in a purely voluntary way, some young, unmarried uh, Palestinian girls. Let's fly them up to Beirut, which is where uh, Black September was. Let's have a sort of party. And let's tell them 
that if they marry, they will get a little flat with a refrigerator and a television and $3,000. And if they have a child, they'll get $5,000. Black September disappeared. You never heard of it again. And even the PLO leadership was so astonished that they did an experiment. They were so often they would go back to these people who knew who they were, and they said, would you like to go to Geneva or from, you know, Berlin or somewhere on a special mission for the PLO? We'll give you a passport, we'll pay you. And the men said, no, we must be on the police list of these people. We've got a family, we love our wives, we've got a job, we've got a television and a refrigerator. We're not going. And so I think the takeaway message I want to leave with you is a suggestion that we do indeed have an inherited predisposition for team aggression, which is extremely costly, very, very dangerous, particularly in a modern world, but also that we don't have to follow these messages that are in our DNA, that we can be sensible, loving people, and that when we have the opportunity to do that, we go down th that road. And so, rather, than, I think we lost the war in Afghanistan when we didn't move in in a very, very big, well-financed, powerful way to help the women of Afghanistan. I wrote the, UN, the United Nations Population Fund's budgets uh, for that work. They were never really uh, implemented. I think we have to put women in front, and that's how I think we'll create a better world, and I'm very, very privileged to try and share that message uh, with the World Affairs Council. Thank you. As I mentioned, our first question is from one of our students, and this is from a student at Garland High School. Um, is war between primates committed out of necessity or out of social pressure from the group? It's a, it's a good question, and it's a purely unconscious thing. The chimpanzees don't say, I'm going to go and kill another chimpanzee so I can get more territory and get more fruit so I can have more female chimpanzees. They just have this drive when they see another chimpanzee that's not part of their troop to kill it. And that's one of the things that we do. In a lot of wars, we intuitively hate other people. Um, at the end of World War II, I thought that the Japanese were a subhuman group of people who deserved to have atomic bombs dropped on them. Nothing gives me greater pleasure in life now that I have a granddaughter with a Japanese-Iranian mother. I mean, this is California. We could describe her as Japanese-American-Scottish. But, you know, we don't have to, to do these things, but it's easy to do them, and it's a good question. Okay. The, actually, there are two questions I have. They're not related questions. Um, good. The first question is, on September 11th, the terrorists... It appeared to me that they came from wealthy and affluent families who don't follow the, the path that you explained. So I'd like to find out yeah. how, if, if there could be a contradiction or some other explanation. Yeah. And the second question I have is a little bit of a sticky, politically incorrect question, so you have to forgive me for that. And that is, is it possible that religions um, inherently discriminate against women. Like in the Muslim religion, for example, women are less than second-class citizens, and many other religions as well. But Muslim stands out most, because that's where it's most apparent. And could that have possibly an influence on the male hormones, since they're so fragile anyways, the males? So that could maybe incite them to more violent and warlike behavior. Thank you. 
In relation to the first question, um, I think the people who are going to fly aeroplanes and do rather complicated um, actions on 9-11 were, were a selected group that probably were more educated. There were some engineers and people who knew which buttons to, to push. Um, a lot of the uh, suicide bombers out of Palestine and places like that um, some of them recently have been women because their handlers know they will get through the checkpoints more easily. Um, they're often women who've had a brother or a father that's been killed that are very, very close to that have got some very personal reason for uh, hating the enemy. Um, religions are hugely uh, various, and both the Koran and the Bible are very large books, and you can find what you want in them. But certainly, I think that... Uh, you can make a plausible case that, that religions, which are universal human phenomena, uh, may have evolved because they did make a very cohesive group. If you're going to beat up and attack your enemies, you want a strong Genghis Khan leader or a leader in the sky that's even more powerful. And I think that some pe people have suggested in a thoughtful and respectful way that, that that's how religions may have come around. Now I think we live in a world where, um, again, um, Islam is simply very uh, complicated. Uh, in, um, in Iran, um, when I was last there, there were moral police making sure you didn't hold hands in the public park and all the women had to cover their hair. But in the same country, you have to have this education about, about family planning. Um, and uh, Ayatollah Khomeini said, you must have the wife's permission to use contraceptives, which is not our stereotype of Islam. So I think there's always things that we can take out of a religion which are supportive of human beings being intensely social, empathetic animals that don't have to kill each other. Do you think the rise of sporting contests as mass entertainment is some kind of proxy for... Uh... Yeah, I, I, I do indeed. I think also, but before we look at the nice things and nasty things, I think the kind of gangs that, that you get... Uh, in Los Angeles or, or in, in Juarez, Mexico, again, a young men in the prime of life, really, they're very loyal to each other, and they feel that they're doing the right thing to kill somebody else because it's getting in the way of trading drugs, whatever it is they want. I, I do think sports are, are ritualized uh, battles and very pleasant ones, and the ones that should be encouraged. But it's also interesting, I think, that um, it's the men that are going rah, 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 and it's the girlfriends that are coming along because they're loyal to the men. Um, and they get a little bit of excitement, but I think that they're not quite this uh, battling group. And they don't like the English soccer thugs who get drunk afterwards. They're nearly all male, and they go up and turn cars over in towns and things. Um, it's still be a lot better than, than killing people. So we will never... Um, I call testosterone the ultimate weapon of mass destruction. Because testosterone is, is a hormone that drives our libido in both men and women. We all have each other's hormones. It's much lower level, about one-tenth the level in women as men. It's also the hormone that makes men risk-taking, that makes men uh, aggressive, also makes men creative. People write their best music in, you know, in that, that age group. So, uh, and I don't think you know, men want to get... I sometimes think we should have an amendment that to be, be present in the U.S. You should be a woman or a eunuch, but... I don't think that's going to get very far. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think we have to understand we are an animal that evolved and was adapted to a Stone Age way of living. Evolution is a very, very slow process. Now we live in this huge globalized world. We have to look at where we've come from, 
trying to understand it in the most objective way possible, and then change our behavior if we want to survive. You propose at one point that we'll be better off if there are more women in positions yeah. of leadership. How would that? How would you see that occurring? Some countries have actually put in quotas, yes. but is that? Uh, Rwanda did. I mean, after the appalling genocide in, in Rwanda, they, they had some sort of benchmark. They have to have, I think, a third of all the legislators female. And I think that makes a, a lot of sense. How we do it in our country, I don't like to set targets. I think it's partly to encourage women. Um, you know, I, I was saying at the reception, I think the luckiest thing you can be as a man or a woman at my age is to be in a university with lots of very bright young people. And I've got an enormous faith in the next generation and their insights. And I think there are going to be a lot of women, who, more than we had previously, who have the confidence um, and the desire to do this. Now, there is a problem that when you look objectively, uh, people have done studies in the Israeli kibbutz, which were very, very um, democratic things. Men taught more than women. <laughs> They're more pushy. Uh, in the uh, economic collapse we've had recently, it was young hedge fund managers who were making risky decisions and caused a lot of problems. Uh, women make much better long-term managers of money or resources. And I think women have to understand that and be given the freedom to do it. I'm delighted to see from the school and this audience that 50% is women, I think, isn't it? It just uh, brought to mind something I was reading about certain areas where men are responsible for the childcare, like as infants, and they see very little evidence of war in those civilizations. Could you comment on that? Yeah, um, I, again, to go back to chimpanzees, the male chimpanzees do nothing to care for the babies. It's entirely a burden on the female. They, they protect a territory. Um, and there's a, a big a cultural variation. And in, there is no human society where males don't recognize paternity, where they don't make some investment in the next generation. But as you suggest, there's a big variation. And I haven't seen that data, but it makes intuitive sense to me that um, we do know that when you look at criminal acts of violence, that they are, A, more common in men who were ill-treated as children who had poor parenting than those that had good parenting, and that secondly, there's a hormone called monoamine oxidase, and if that's at a low level, you're more violent. And if you put together bad genes, and you can have bad genes for violence, and bad culture, then 90% of the really nasty crimes that men produce are in that category of bad parenting and bad um, low monoamine oxidase enzyme. Thank you, Professor. My question is about the role of technology in dehumanizing other human beings. Yeah. And would it be fair to say that those who work in the weapons industry and who are responsible for acts of mass destruction are representative of the kind of behavior that you are suggesting? Can we then, at a moral level, uh, have reservations about the entire industrial military complex? I think we'll probably always have um, armies, or at least for the foreseeable future. I think the people, I, I, in the Second World War, I lived in Cambridgeshire, we were surrounded by air bases with American bomber pilots and British bomber pilots. Those men used to come to my mother's church. They were very brave, clean-shaven, rather gentle people. 
they were dropping bombs which were killing women and children in, in Germany. Half of them themselves were going to die. And when you read about it, they said, you know, I, I was on a mission. And I was extremely frightened. There was flak all over the place. There were Messerschmitts trying to shoot me down. I was doing a job. I didn't think about the people down below. They didn't, you know, I assumed that I was hitting factories and things. And uh, half the German submariners um, were to die in the war. So there's this huge sort of conflict. One thing which I think we should learn, and the, what's going on in Libya, I think, is a very serious warning. Libya has these heat-seeking missiles that bring down aeroplanes. As when you have a civil war and things fall apart, somebody's going to come from Al-Qaeda and steal those or buy them for a few thousand dollars, and they're very dangerous for civil airliners. I think we should be very careful when we have a very highly developed um, arms industry not to sell arms to anybody except a democracy. Um, you know, we tend to sell them because we think, um, you know, uh, some dictator is going to be there for a long time. It is a huge mistake. Um, was it Aesop who said, you know, the bird, the eagle was killed by the arrow shafted with its own feathers, and we're going to be killed by the arrows we've given other people. Yes, and, and you know, and, and boot camp is making people a loyal to family and b ready to hate somebody because they're different. They're an out group. Um, my question is about economic development in yeah. general. You hope that in that field that culture wouldn't matter because sometimes that's the default for why certain yeah. institutions can't change. But if we're saying that certain cultures perpetuate a higher growth rate and those that don't tend to be uh, higher indexed on economic development scales, how do you reconcile those two things without blaming it on culture? Well, I, some cultures, you know, we may have to blame. I, I think we... <laughs> um, I, in my interest in population growth, we're not saying that, that um, slowing population growth is the only factor. I mean, corruption is hugely important in a country like, like Nigeria. I am saying that we cannot find a country with very rapid population growth and with more of an average of about five children that's pulled itself out of poverty. Those countries just don't exist. So to move forward... Um, Family planning is necessary but not sufficient for development. I think we should make much more investment in, in education in, in developing countries, but we should go back to a focus on family planning because it's something that people want. We're not telling people what to do, we're listening to what they want, and that has been my experience throughout uh, the world. And I've seen family size go from six to two in Thailand, or 1.8 now in a purely voluntary way. I've seen that in South Korea, I've seen that in the southern part of India. Um, and again, family planning, oh, I've got my uh, happy condom tie on. Can you see it on the television? Uh, um, but, you know, family planning is v extraordinarily sort of toxic and, and controversial in the United States. Actually, it's a very straightforward thing. If you respect people and give them choices, if you counter misinformation, it's remarkably how rapidly family size will fall, and that is a good thing. It's a good thing for the mother for her children, children are more likely to live if they're properly faced. A woman cannot die from a pregnancy she doesn't have. Um, you know, it's good for society, it's good for the planet Earth. We're going to have a problem of finding sufficient resources. We're going to go by 2050 for somewhere between 8 and 10 billion people. I think 10 billion people might be the 10 billion straws that break the camel's back. 8 billion people is going to be difficult to feed 
but we might be able to do it. If we don't get our act together, we'll have more failed states. The whole of the Sahel, Burkina Faso, Mali, Chad, Central African Republic, they'll all turn into Yemens. You know, and that's not a happy situation for the people in them or for us and for our long-term uh, security. Um, Pakistan, um, Pakistan and Bangladesh, when I first went there, had s similar family size. Pakistan was slightly more urbanized. Pakistan still has many more children than Bangladesh. Bangladesh got its act together. Pakistan didn't. Now Pakistan has nuclear weapons. It is a very, very unstable society. Karachi is a sort of frontier town where people... Um, get held up at, uh, at gunpoint. There's increasing, you see it every day, that the government is sort of behind sandbags. It looks like England in 1940. Um, very, very worrying situation. We've left things rather late, but I think we, I hope everybody in this room will, will leave with a conviction that family planning is a human right and that it's something we can help very poor people with that it's a very low-cost intervention. We spend $1.8 billion a day on defense. If we had spent a billion dollars in Afghanistan, and my budgets for family planning were much lower than that, we might have had a more stable country today. Osama bin Laden is the 17th child of a man who had 54 children, and he'd have had more if he hadn't been killed in an air crash. Perhaps I might end with one thing. Because um, we're proud of this, this is something my wife helped with. This is a report from the British government. The British um, Parliament, all-party group, uh, the, the UK seems to find it easier than America to get parliamentarians to drop their um, sort of labels and look at issues. And this is a group of Conservatives and Labour uh, members of Parliament who looked at population and it's called, rather like Star Wars, Return of the Population Growth Factor, its impact on the Millennium Development Goals. I think in the World Affairs you know about the Millennium Development Goals, and its conclusion is it's difficult or impossible to achieve the Millennium Development Goals without slowing rapid population growth. So this is security and warfare apart. This is a very, very humane and necessary thing to do if we want to make the world uh, not only a safer place, but a happier... Can download that? You can download this, yes. It's... Uh, APPG for all party parliamentary group dash pop dev rh dot org dot uk. I'll show it to anybody afterwards. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.